Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge Podcast, where we discuss creatives of color disrupting the game in TV, film, and pop culture. I am your host, Rebecca Theodore Vishal, and on this episode, I am joined by screenwriter Cortia Newland of the Amazon series Small Acts, directed by Steve McQueen, which premieres November 20th in the U.S. Take a listen. Welcome, Cortia Newland, to the Spectrum Lounge. I'm so happy you're here. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Great. Yeah, Small Axe is a project that um, I know that they announced it, I want to say, like, two, three years ago. And so that's, it's been on my, it's been on my radar because I'm a yeah. huge fan of Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, hearing the idea of having this, this series that is focused on the Black West Indian community in, um, in, in the UK. And so it, it spans three decades, correct? Because the 60s, 70s and 80s, is that? That's right. That yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you co-wrote two of the episodes, mm-hmm. um, Red, White and Blue, which stars John Boyega and Steve Toussaint. And then you also uh, co-wrote Lover's Rock, which, w- which was actually selected by um, the Cannes Film Festival. And I believe Small Axe was also uh, premiered at the New York Film Festival. So yeah, yeah. what's it been like to to see the reaction of, of people, um, just the reviews and just the conversations oh, about, about these shows? Yeah, it's been beyond my wildest dreams. Um, I knew in the writer's room that it was going to be something special. Like I was coming out every day after we finished this stuff in the school and saying, this is going to be huge, you know, and it's going to be really big. So, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just uh, very, very difficult to comprehend, like, like the enormity of it, you know, and, and like the reality of the fact that people were really, really liking it. And then all the reviews came in and that really, you know, I remember the first night the reviews came in, I think it was for, that's when Love was Rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, I read a few of them and then I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I just went, <laughs> it was like so good. And like, especially in the UK, you know, people like uh, Peter Bradshaw, you know, giving yes. it the stars just blew me away. I know Peter Bradshaw's reviews, you know. So like, yeah, it was just mm-hmm. and the responses from people that I was seeing, you know, when they were talking about it, it was just really like amazing and stuff. And then, you know, when the rest, when Mangrove came out, same thing and Red, White and Blue, same thing. And just like, I just couldn't believe it, you know. So, yeah, I just just really, really bowled over. I'm still a little, a little bit shocked by it all. I'm not still, yes. I think Steve is as well. I think he's just like... Is he? Yeah, he really, you know, obviously it's really personal and close to him and stuff. And I mean, after we'd seen the, the films in the screen and we spoke to him and he was just a bit like, this is a bit mad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I think, um, you know, because I think this this project was in the works from like 2015, correct? Or like 2016. So this has been like five years in the making. Yeah. And it's been the, five years. But it's been, it's yeah. Been that. yeah. And, and the thing that just struck me is that for a project that, you know, that was five years in the making, and yet when it came out, it still feels amazingly but also disappointingly it's so timely like it is so relevant right now especially with everything that's going on right now with you know the black lives matter protests not only here but in the uk and just pretty much the world worldwide mm-hmm. um and um so i i wanted to start with red white and blue because mm-hmm. that is actually based on the true life story of leroy logan 
mm-hmm. who was a, a, a black British officer, and he was the first chair of the National Black Police Association and basically used his career to um, you know, address police brutality and, and the unfair treatment of people of color. Um, can you tell us how you got in contact, how you got involved with this project and what was your first meeting with Steve McQueen like? Uh, I got in contact with this project because I was working on a, I'm a playwright as well. I was working on another project in a, a, a town called, city called Sheffield in the north of England. And I just got a call one day saying, uh, would you like to be involved in the Steve McQueen project? as it was called at that point in time. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, hell yes, I would. <laughs> and I knew all about the project. I'd been following it for a, a number of years uh, before I, I got that call. And I always wanted to do it because I'm from West London. I'm born yes. and raised from West London. And uh, I'm a novelist as well. And all of my novels are set in West London about the Black British community. So I was like, this is a project that I am personally perfect for. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just like, I know it, I was just watching it happen basically from the sidelines and I was a bit like, oh, well, and I'd actually let it go by that point. I'd been like, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to happen without me. I'm just going to have to deal with it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then I got the call and, uh, yeah, so I had a meeting with the producers and I showed them some of my work and they liked my work and they said they knew of me and stuff. And they said, okay, so the next thing is you're going to have to meet Steve. And uh, that that took a little while because, you know, Steve being as busy as he is. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, I met him in a hotel in, in, in uh, the West End. And we had a meeting, which I actually thought went terribly. I thought it went really badly. And I thought I'd messed it up. And I told right. him I'd messed it up when I left the meeting. You know what I mean? I was really like, you, you messed it up. I didn't do that. <laughs> but apparently I did okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. And, and so I was told afterwards, no, actually, he, he really thought you were great. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. And, uh, and and so then I got invited to be in the writer's room. And we did six weeks in a writer's room and basically, um, you know, beat out, uh, worked out the storyline for all of the episodes for Small Acts. Right. So did you actually meet in your in your research for, for writing Red, White and Blue? Did you actually meet Leroy Rogan, the, uh, Logan? Oh, yeah, the... that. Um, yes, I did. So so in that, as part of that, that that five, six weeks uh, writer's room, uh, Leroy Logan came in and talked to us about his experiences. So mm. uh, we met people who've been involved in the mangrove. We, you know, we met very, you know, various people who would help us with different episodes and stuff. And Leroy came in to talk about his and I remember, you know, it was an afternoon and he spoke for quite a long time about everything. And we were all just like, what? Because mm-hmm. I'd never heard that story before. And to be honest with you, none of us could work out what the hell happened and why he'd done that. Right. Don't do that. And like it says in the script, you know, it's not America. People don't, especially not in the 80s in London, you know, people did not. If you are black, you don't join the police force. There were very few black police policemen and women. There's a few more now, but back then, it was like you hardly if ever saw a black policeman or woman. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't, I didn't understand it. I was just like, well, I don't get this. I don't, you know. And so then afterwards, we talked a little bit more. And then Steve said that would be my episode, and I was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because. Don't get me wrong. I loved the story. I thought it was such right. a cool story, but I was just like, "That's huge!" Like how? Like, well, you know, I was just really intimidated, basically. And um, then we met Leroy one more time during that writers' room, 
and we sat and spoke to him and, and we were really trying to work out what is it that made you want to do this and halfway through that meeting it clicked I felt like I knew why he did it mm. and uh then I was okay I was just like I was okay Steve was like well, how do you feel about it and stuff after that meeting and I was like you know it's cool I, I think I think I got this yeah I think I get it yeah right and that was it yeah yeah I was ready yeah I, I felt like you, too, like when I first watched the episode. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's no spoilers here because it, it really mm-hmm. happened. The, the scene where we see Leroy's father being brutalized by the police and then he decides to join. I admit, like you, when I watched it, I was like, I don't yeah. know. Are they going to be able to pull this off? Because I don't understand why he would do that. <laughs> yeah. I think what was so great about the writing of the episode is that, at least to me, when I was watching it, it was really Leroy and Kenneth just coming at it, at it from two different angles, right? I think they they both had the anger and they both understood the injustice, um, you know, that the police were enacting. But I I feel like they were just going about it in different ways. His, Leroy's solution was like, I'm going to go, you know, from the inside and change it from the inside out. And, you know, Kenneth was more like, I want my day in court. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to take them down, burn it all down. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like that's what I got in that meeting with, mm-hmm. uh, with Leroy was that I got that he believed it. That's what the, the penny dropped for me, was that he really believed that he could make a change. And even at that point in time when we were speaking to him, you know, like uh, 20, 30 years later, he mm-hmm. still believed it. not only that he could make a change, but that things needed to change. And he wasn't going to stop until it did. You know what I mean? And right. kind of like zeal, whether it's, it's, it's misplaced or, or not, is really admirable. And mm-hmm. I saw a man who who just hadn't been crushed by any of these experiences. He refused to let it crush him. Uh, he refused to be defeated. And 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 like I said a few other times as well, he, he he turned back to the community. He drew like, you know, sustenance from the community, you know, when 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 think times were hard. And he never stopped looking in that direction. And in, in the in the first place, he he did it for the community. And now at this stage of stuff, he still he still believes that he's got to change things for the community. And so it, it was um it was a huge change for me. It was a huge realization for me. And once I could I knew why the character was behaving in that way, it just fell into place, you know. Right. Yeah. Of- I- um, yeah, that that opening the opening scene where you see Leroy as a as a young child and being approached and being searched by the police. And I think the reason why I, I'm so excited for people to watch watch this episode too is you know there's there's just been this discussion right like sometimes there's this misunderstanding that maybe you know black British people don't experience police brutality or racism the same way yeah, that black yeah, yeah. Americans do, or it's not as bad. And I just feel like this episode pretty much shuts down every conversation or any argument that somebody may have, because, you know, it that could have eased that easily could happen in a corner in Chicago or New York or Washington, D.C., you know, just a young black boy mm-hmm. minding his business. We see this all the time. So I was, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I it was just, I was just so upset watching that episode. Like, oh my God, um, you know, that seeing his father being brutalized, um, you know, the scene where he, with the locker, where they write the N word on it. Yeah. Did that really happen? Is because I was really like, happened. Every, all of it really wow. happened. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Not only was, did all of that really happen, that was absolutely normal. Like where I used to live, 
Uh, uh-huh. I used to walk down. They, I live by, you know, in Mangrove, you see the, the Westway and it's being built, the huge motorway. I lived uh, by a place called White City and, and uh, right next to the Westway. You can literally look out of my house window and there's the Westway. Like, like you know, it's the, a little further down, a few miles down from, from Labour Grove. And when you walked past the pillars that held up the Westway, you would see uh, things like, and I'm going to use some triggering ratio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blurs, right? So they'd say wogs out. And wog was, you know, basically the N-word but in Britain. Wow. Basically. And it would be wogs out and it would be NF, which was National Front, which was the far right group. And you see it written up. And you'd walk past this when I went to the shops, like every day, you know, and it was everywhere. So th- at this point in time in Britain, it was quite uh, normal what was happening to Leroy. And you see the way that they're talking to him and the, you know, the things that they're saying to him is not like, oh, we need to be uh, guarded about this. It was openly said. You would hear it on television. You would turn on the television and characters on the television would be saying it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was everywhere, everywhere. And so I found it really strange when I've gone to, you know, I've come to the US and stuff and I've been having discussions with people and they'd say to me, oh, you know, you guys didn't have a civil rights movement was said to me one time. And like, what is that? What? <laughs> yeah. I'm getting really upset. <laughs> because I'd be like, but, but not like, like you need to like just pick up a book or, or like just do some research. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. It's all there really. There's like, you know, like even Malcolm X, you know, he came to the UK because of what was going on in the UK, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, and, I, and, and in some ways I don't really, I get where it's coming from because there's been uh, a lot of misinformation and, mm-hmm. and people haven't been telling these stories. We haven't been uh, given the, 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 the power to tell these stories in the UK. And also in the US, you know, like if you see anything about the UK, it's been like Downton Alley and Abbey and um, EastEnders yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. of course people don't understand, you know, like what the real life stories are. But that what happened to Leroy Logan? And all of those things that we're talking about in small acts was just like pervasive. It was universal. Everyone went through it. Right. No, I, I love what you said about the, the uh, this idea of like the black British people didn't have a civil war. Because I remember a few years ago, I mean, this isn't to dunk on anybody, but there was a series a few years ago from Showtime that was called Gorilla that was supposed to tackle <laughs> that that topic. But, you know... Eh, people were just sort of like, uh, I'm not sure if we're getting the whole story here because yeah, one yeah. of the, yeah, one of the major complaints was that there was an absolute absence of black women in the telling of the story, um, which I told people small acts is definitely not that. I'm like, this is not girl, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. it's coming from you guys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say anything about gorilla, but I just feel like that, that, uh, yeah. It's, it's obvious, really, any kind of, like, you know, social justice movement and, and, and civil rights movement that pertains to our people is, is like, is driven by black women. We know mm-hmm. that. You know what I mean? So, so you just can't, you can't leave that out. That just can't, it's got to be a fundamental part of any story that you're telling, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I just, I'm just so glad that, that you know, that's, the story that we chose to tell, you know, and, and, we, and we got the opportunity to do that big and it's been received so well. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, the ending to, to red, white and blue, it was just so just the two of them sitting at that table. Yeah. Um, because it felt like 
Leroy's character, like, he really didn't understand, like, why his father was so upset and why he wanted his day in court. And there's this specific scene after he um, confronts the cops in the pool room. Mm-hmm. And then there's this the shot goes from him to his father in the bathroom when, you know, he found out he wasn't going to get his day in court. And it was like, now he gets it. <laughs> I feel like it was a it was a full circle moment for Leroy where he finally understood where his father was coming from. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's quite interesting in the UK because usually that that disconnect, that generational disconnect goes the other way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times you would hear about uh, the kids being brutalized by the police and then going back and telling their parents and the parents, the, the, you know, the Windrush generation parents saying, you must have done something wrong. You must have mm. done something to the law for this to happen to you. The, the police wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? I just don't believe it. And there was a kind of generational disconnect. So... That's what another one of those things I found really interesting about Leroy's story is that it just didn't happen that way. It happened in reverse. But also it was about the way that, that people who were born in Britain have a sense of um, belonging and, um, and, and, and central, centralization uh, that the previous generation didn't have. You know, they came from somewhere else. They were trying to you know, be themselves or to, to fit into society. And it was a quite uncomfortable fit. But I think uh, the next generation actually uh, took it for granted that certain rights and privileges were meant to be theirs. <laughs> and so, and I think that's what Leroy felt. And in some ways, he's totally right. I mean, like, I agree with him in a sense. Yeah, you should have those rights and privileges. Obviously, you don't. And that's where the internet was. But he believed that he should, and he was willing to fight for that. And I think I find that really inspirational, you know, in some mm-hmm. way. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> um, I did want to switch to Lover's Rock because I, I love all of them. They're like five separate children that I, that I love, that I love mm-hmm. equally. But yeah, there's okay. with Lover's Rock, it was just so... It was so specific because it really, it takes place in one night at a house party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've got all these different characters. So what was your approach to writing this episode? Because, I mean, there's, you know, there's no special effects. There's no, you know, this is very much a character-driven story. Yeah. What, yeah. what was what was the approach to writing uh, the script for Lover's Rock? I think in my mind, I was just so overjoyed at being given the chance to write this because I was saying to myself, and I don't think, I've not even told Steve, I might have said it in another interview, but I never said to Steve, but I was like, I really have the opportunity to do an art house movie directed mm. by Steve McQueen about black British culture. Like when, <laughs> yeah, so I have to really go in, you know what I mean? Like I have to do it. Yeah. Full force, the way it was meant to be as authentic as possible and uh, just, just immerse myself in it. I was overjoyed. I mean, I'm glad it comes across that people are feeling this real sense of joy in 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 the film because I was overjoyed to be doing it. I was mm-hmm. so happy. I was playing music. My next door neighbor at the time, uh, she's moved out now, was like a, a elderly Jamaican woman, uh, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Blair, which is why uh, Dennis Bovell's character is called Mr. Blair. And uh, she would have these huge house parties, like like literally, like you know, last summer. And yeah. <laughs> And she would have it and they would go on till three, four in the morning in a back garden, full sound system, everything. And she'd be playing some of these records and stuff. You know what I mean? And I'd be writing in my room, mm-hmm. like, in my room writing Lover's Rock. So it was right. just that uh, immersion into culture. I think that's what I did slightly differently with this piece. You know, it was kind of like mm-hmm. a, 
I don't like. I don't want to use the word an observation piece because I know it comes yeah. slightly that way with the camera and stuff. But it's an observation mm. piece from the inside rather than being detached and from the outside. You know, mm. uh, it's it's being in the center of the party with these people and observing. You know, uh, all the little details and nuances and stuff. And but but I feel like I didn't try to make it different from Red, White, and Blue. I just knew that it had its own voice. And Red, White and Blue voice was very, very specific. It was very much about this particular thing and saying this particular thing. And Lovers Rock was saying the polar opposite, basically. You know, it was completely the opposite. And it's really yeah. a chance to, to do that, to tell two completely polar opposite stories about the same community and uh, essentially tackling the same thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it. what you said about the like, it, it was so specific. Like I grew up in a West Indian neighborhood in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was like, setting up the speakers and the cooking and and I was just like wow like it it felt accurate it was a hundred percent accurate and yeah. like even down to I was watching to my I was watching my friend I was like you know this is how I know that a black West Indian person made I was like there's a scene I think there's a shot of the wall where you see like it's actually like it's not sweating, but it's, you, you kind of see Wait, perspiration. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's how you know you're at a good house party. If the, yeah. if the walls are sweating, you're doing it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, all of those things, I think, uh, me and Steve were in back and forth discussion about throughout, mm-hmm. well, on the writer's room, but also throughout, and also also Alex as well, throughout the, throughout the writing of this. So, you know, things like, you know, like, people would bring different things to the table, you know, like, so, mm-hmm. so you would, I would remember, or I would ask my mom about Maccasins, you know what I mean? The drink and stuff. And she'd be like, okay, you need to put that in. So I'll put that in. And then Alex, we all would remember the man at the door, you know what I mean? Like the big dude from the door who just got out of jail, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> and Kung Fu fighting, you know what I mean? And then Steve would say, okay, but we've got to have the sweat and stuff. And we've got to have this and that and touching of the arms and stuff like that. And between yes. The three of us, we wove this tapestry of what the night would be like, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember it very well because I was like, uh, I was, I don't know, man, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, when these parties were going on, you know. And my dad, uh, some would say irresponsibly, but thank God he did it, he used to take me to these parties, you know. all the time and then my mum wasn't very happy about it but but at certain times and stuff he was just they come and there'd be a load of kids and you were supposed to stay in the bedroom with the kids you know Steve was talking about this the other day with all the coats piled up on the bed that's where you were meant to be but you would sneak out and you would come down and you would just watch what was going on and stuff or you would can I have some food you know what I mean and someone would go and get your plate, you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it really was like it really did feel so lived in. And one of the things that I, I did appreciate about that episode too, and I'm glad that you pinpointed it and talked about it, is one of the characters who attempts to sexually assault um the the birthday girl, the the guest of honor. And I, I feel like that is that is very much um an honesty in our community where it's it the party was very much a communion. A lot of women are there, right? A lot of these parties are, are populated by women, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're safe all the time, that even toxic masculinity has a way of entering these spaces. And even as women, we have to be careful, or I shouldn't say be careful, but like these are these are the things that we have to deal with. You know, the guy who mm-hmm. is a little too aggressive 
right? <laughs> when he's asking you to dance where he's like, like the part where she tried to go into the bathroom and he tried going in with her. And yeah, that yeah. happened to me. That has actually yeah, happened yeah, yeah. to me. I've seen it. And there's, yeah. there's, there's a spillover, you know, like most people can conduct themselves with a level of, okay, you know, this is where my moral understanding lies. And there's always going to be someone who goes a little bit over the edge in every party, you know what I mean? I've just, mm. you know, I've just been watching Grand Army, you know what I mean? And like just seeing you know, like how, I don't know if you've seen that series, but that how... Mm this spillover in that you know it's a really thin line of stuff but I, that came from um my aunt's story i was asking my auntie about uh how the dances were because i knew as much as i remembered and and, and as broad as my memories were and, mm-hmm. and steve and alex's we were all men you know what i mean so mm. i was telling a woman's story and I'm very careful when I tell a woman's story. You know what I mean, right. I make sure that 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 I don't stray into my own, um, my my own uh, accidental or habitual patriarchy. So mm-hmm. uh, I had to talk to my mom, and I couldn't ask my mom those things. You know what I mean? It was too a bit too raw and close. So I spoke to my auntie, and I didn't actually I wasn't probing or looking for it. You know, my auntie just yeah. like said she started talking about stuff, and she said, and sometimes. She said something like, and sometimes some guys wouldn't say no. Mm. He said to me, you know what I mean? I was like, whoa, because I hadn't, you know what I mean? I hadn't really, of course, you know what I mean? It makes sense, but I hadn't thought about it. And so, yeah, that's where that, that strand came from. I was like, I've got to put that in. There's no way I can really honor, you know, their experiences if I don't put this happening to someone, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting that the, the two women in that scene, like in the beginning, she was kind of, <laughs> Yeah. hating on her like what is she doing yeah. here <laughs> and then it comes out that she's the one who actually you know helps her yeah. saves her from being sexually assaulted so yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's true too as far as like you know as women I think yes we have a sisterhood but sometimes we can be catty yeah. and sometimes yeah. we can be competitive I felt yeah. that was real <laughs> yeah that's, I got pulled up one time because I wrote a story about some women like young women and stuff and they and and other women said to me those characters in that story were too friendly to her you know I mean? mm. <laughs> in reality, they wouldn't have been as friendly. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, well, you know, and that's they, that again came out in the, in the script and stuff. But it serves as a nice arc for her as well, for Cynthia. You know, she starts off in yeah. one, place and she ends up. You know, she's had a journey. You know, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. It, it, talk to me about the scene. The the one scene that I found really fascinating was the scene. I think it's like towards the end where all the men get together, and it, it almost mm-hmm. looks like this tribal. Mm-hmm. dance because you know mm-hmm. you have that guy the one who you know tried to sexually yeah, assault her, and then you yeah, had the yeah. other uh uh her cousin who came in and he just seemed yeah, really yeah. agitated and i don't know if it was me but it kind of felt like the dj and the other men the mm-hmm. less toxic men were trying to keep it under control like yeah, they were like okay yeah. let's 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 channel the energy here yeah, yeah, on totally. the dance floor i mean we, we spoke about this a lot about the, the dance being an oasis um mm-hmm. and it for the, for the women, for, for black people as a whole, but particularly particularly for the men. And, you know, all week you have to be out there, you have to be dealing with Leroy Logan star racism, you know what I mean? You'll be hearing this, that, and the other about you. Some people are getting attacked, some people are being brutalized by the police. And and, and the dance was a way to, to not only be yourselves, to also let out that outrage and let out that energy and that, 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 that anger in some ways in a way that is not, going to damage yourself and every night i would you know with these dances and stuff i would wait for the dub part of the night you know what i mean when mm. just let loose because it always happens you know it always was like first you play the soul and stuff like that 
And then you play the lovers and then you play the hard, hard reggae and stuff. And then you play the dub, you know what I mean? And the dub would be, you know, after the midnight hour, you know what I mean? In the early hours of the morning and stuff. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it'd be a very masculine place. There'll be women there, but it'd be a very masculine place. And the man would just let loose. The men would just let loose. And, um, yeah. yeah, I really wanted to capture that. I knew that had to be the, 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 the focal point of the night, the climactic part of the night. And I, I'd see it in, um, you know, August Wilson also. You know, I know it sounds kind of random and weird, but August Wilson in plays like Joe Turner's Come and Gone, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a moment where people connect and reconnect with their Africanness. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've always wanted to do that. Uh, <laughs> in Fella, you know, when Fella, I don't know if you've seen it on Broadway, you know, the Fella yeah. musical, when he, when he climbed the ladder to his mum's spirit, you know what I mean? There's a moment of pure Africanness. And mm. what that means to me, that's that them saying, okay, we are going to wholly be ourselves in this modern place. And also progress and also have a progression. Like we're going to do it in this modern, really dub electronic way. But it's, mm. a, it's another aspect of our Africanness. Yeah. And um, yeah. And that's the thing too, is like the music, well, all the episodes, the, the music and all of the episodes are amazing, but specifically with Lovers Rock, it was like the music, they were playing disco, they were playing Kung Fu fight. And it was just like, just kind of seeing like this bridge of the African diaspora, like we're listening, you know, they're listening to American music. Right. And I remember when I was here in the eighties, you had like what we call the black British invasion with like soul to soul. And you know what I mean? And it's like, we've always been connected. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I really hope that this film and all the films, but particularly Lovers Rock really shows that connection. It was happening even then. And people talk a lot about, oh, the connection was only one way, but I don't really believe that, you know, I think, yeah, in the whole, yes, in the whole, yes, but but I think a lot more was going on, and it was a lot more complicated than people gave it credit for. You know what I mean? It was it was wasn't as straight as that. It wasn't as black and white as that. You know. So, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Cortia Newland, for speaking with me. I'm really excited. Um, Small Axe will premiere on Amazon Prime in the U.S. It will be premiering next Friday, November twentieth. I can't wait for everybody to watch it so everybody can talk about it. I can't talk to anybody about it. I've only known two people no, who've seen it, but I, no. yeah, I'm really excited about it. Thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed this. Great. Thank you so much and have a great day. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.